following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. All right, good morning, brothers and sisters, please grab your Bible, go back to your seats. If you have your Bible, go ahead and open it to 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, we've, for the last month or two, have been exploring and studying together this first letter of Peter to the churches. They're scattered among the provinces of of Asia Minor, what would be modern-day Turkey today. And the goal of Peter's letter, if you recall, is to encourage Christians to live out their faith in a hostile world. They're facing persecution and pressures are mounting socially from family, friends, from the culture, from the government. And naturally, when temptations and and persecutions arise, there's a desire to look elsewhere for comfort, to question whether the, the decision you made, for instance, to follow Jesus is the right one. Peter wants to remind these brothers and sisters that they have made the right choice and that Christ will keep them and indeed is keeping for them an inheritance that they will receive on the day of judgment when he returns and repays all of the the maliciousness done towards them. They will be vindicated and their righteousness will be their own reward. So we've studied what it looks like as a Christian to live as elect exiles is the word that Peter uses. As obedient children. This morning, we'll see that Peter calls us to live as faithful stewards. Let's look at the text. We're going to read from verse 7 through verse 11 of chapter 4. Peter writes, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, let as one who speaks oracles of God, whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. You pray. Father, help us to walk faithfully in light of this text and see in it the truth of your word Help us to love one another earnestly, as the text commands us. Help us to be encouraged by the word this morning, and to see in the gospel the precious promises made true for us. We love you, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you've taken a trip to a big city, and as you're walking You've seen 
usually a disheveled man with a sign, usually cardboard, scribbled on it, the end is nigh. And he's yelling at people passing by, demanding that they repent and be saved because the end is near. Now, is he wrong? Well, no, certainly not. Peter here, we see, says the very same thing. One would hope this brother or sister is reading the Bible and is so moved by God's word that he wants to commend the gospel so that they may be with Christ and not against him at the end of things. But there in verse 7, it says, the end of all things is at hand. It's near. It's dawning. The end has now begun. What's interesting is that they've decided with the time that they have determined they have left to spend it this way and not what many in the world might do otherwise. What would you do if you knew that the world was going to end at a particular time? If you had the dates of the apocalypse or, God forbid, you received a terminal diagnosis and the doctor gives you weeks, months, left to live. Well, what are the typical things most people do in response to this? Well, some people might have a bucket list. that They want to go and explore the world and see various places and accomplish certain things and do certain activities that they otherwise would not have done, that they've kept pushing further and further back. But now that the end is near, in fact, it seems nearer than ever, what better time to do it than now? Or maybe you won't do any of those things and you just would enjoy the quiet of your own company, a good book, and a cozy fire, and just wait for the world to end. I think often when we think about what we would do if we knew the world was going to end at a particular time, in a particular way, that this would turn our attention from the matters of this world to the matters of the world hereafter. We begin to think about what it will be like on the other end of this. We're less concerned about the things of this world and now look elsewhere to the world hereafter. Sure, we might put our affairs in order if there will be some survivors beyond us. Maybe we'll go to reconcile a few broken relationships that we wouldn't want to leave opened and unreconciled. But really, our plans are primarily focused with our getting to the other side of life. Not concerned with any long-term good, temporal good, in fact, it's said that Martin Luther, as it is October and close to Reformation Day, Martin Luther once quipped that if I believed the world were to end tomorrow, I would still plant a tree today. That's interesting, and it's not likely he actually said that, but it does sound like something he would say. And it demonstrates this kind of Lutheran attitude or commitment to creaturely service to the neighbor to the world. So even though God may have returned at any moment and ended the world in his ordained way, Luther, in his theology, still committed himself to the world around him. He would still plant a tree. One version of this says, plant a tree and pay his taxes. But I don't know if Luther would have said that. No, there's this, there's this idea in the mind of Christians that even when the world seems to be drawing near to an end with the imminent return of Christ at hand, there is a call to love and serve our neighbors nonetheless. And so whether Luther actually said this or not, it really plays on this tension 
between this world and the world to come. And you can feel that tension in our own text this morning. So Peter, as an elder and as a pastor, recognizes the tension here that exists between longing and waiting for Christ to return and to usher in our new heavenly home and the tension between that world and the reality of life and what theologians would call the now and the not yet. The kingdom has been inaugurated. Heaven is being ushered in, and yet we don't live in heaven. And that kingdom is not yet fully consummated here on earth. We live in the in-between, in the now and the not yet. And there's this tension that exists in the real world with Christians who wait eagerly, longing, expectantly for that time to come, this new day, this new dawning of a better era, of a new and, and glorious kingdom, but also this world full of sin and regret. And Peter is a pastor. He's an elder, he'll call himself in the next chapter, and he recognizes this tension between those two worlds. To highlight this, let me offer an analogy. Consider a soldier who, who deeply loves his king and country. In fact, he would lay his life down for his kingdom. And so he enlists in the kingdom's army. In due course, the king sends the unit that this brother has assigned himself to, to the front line to wage war against the enemies of the kingdom and of the king himself. But not only this, but to also go and save those members of the kingdom that are scattered throughout enemy territory, to bring them back home to safe refuge. And that's the soldier's mission, who loves his king and country and would lay his life down for the sake and service of his king and his country, goes to enemy territory to defend the country, but also to save those scattered abroad. That's his mission, and this faithful soldier gladly serves but as he serves on the front line, where is his heart? Is it not at home? Is it not with his family? With his home? Is it not with the land that he once tended to? With the restaurants and the pubs he once frequent? And the places he visited with friends? Is it not often the case with those who are deployed faithfully, diligently serving their country in a foreign land, but longing to be back home. That's the tension the Christian lives with. We're in this world. We're soldiers enlisted in the army of the Lord. We're missionaries serving on the foreign soil, and our heart is with Christ, our King, in his country, of which we are citizens and members. But it's not here. We're here and there's a tension we live with in this world. Peter, Peter recognizes this. And so according to Scripture, then it's precisely for this reason, this desire for home that motivates us to do good in the world, even in these last days. And Peter says the end of all things is at hand. This is a sense of motivating Christians to not just wait, but to engage and it's that love and desire for home that motivates Christians to do good in the world, even in the last days. So rather than just sitting and waiting, we love and we serve. In fact, it may be appropriate in this case to rework the oft-quoted phrase, let us not be so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. Have you heard this phrase before? 
it's not a great phrase, but I think we could rework it to say something like, let us be so heavenly minded that we do earthly good. I think that's the nuance here that Peter intends, right? He's not talking about earthly mindedness. He's talking about heavenly mindedness. Our heart and our minds are focused on the world to come. The end of all things is at hand. But where do we turn our attention? To the mission God has given us. There are many Christians who have received the mission to go into the world, not to be of it, but to go in as Christ himself was sent to seek and save the lost, to draw those as God draws near to himself to Christ. Paul calls us ambassadors for Christ. We're missionaries on foreign soil. We receive that mission, but there are many Christians who reject it or ignore it. Instead, happily, happily and begrudgingly wait for just the Lord to come. This is not what Peter calls Christians to do. These Christians, by the way, who have a far more hardship than you or I have at this current moment, who suffer not only the hardship of life in the first century, but life as Christians under a dominating emperor. The idea of heaven isn't a theological construct meant to falsely incentivize Christians to behave. No, heaven is a reality that is meant to break forth into our lives in the, in the here and the now as we await its full consummation in the age to come. That's the main idea. I think it's on the screen. You can try that. It's not a theological construct meant to falsely incentivize Christians to behave like the story we tell our kids about Santa, to behave that they might get good gifts. Heaven is meant to be a reality to break forth into our lives in the here and the now as we wait its full consummation in the age to come. Let us be so heavenly minded that we do earthly good. And so in the context here, if you remember, Peter's seeking to encourage Christians to remain steadfast in their faith, to honor those who are in authority above them, even the unjust and harsh rulers and masters placed above us. And we move toward the world, including those who are hostile to us because of our faith. We move towards them in kindness and in love with an aim to bless them and not to curse them. And Christ, he says, is the example for us in this regard. In his own words, actually should provide some comfort for us as his people. You may recall in the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verse 10, it says, the very last, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In fact, it's the only Beatitude which has an expansion. Jesus begins to say, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So there's a reward, an inheritance, an undefiled, imperishable inheritance kept for you in heaven on the day of visitation, and that is yours to keep. And this reward will come in due time as will the judgment of God against those who persecute the church. But the question is, what are Christians to do in the meantime? And that's what Peter seeks to speak to. 
What are Christians to do in the now and the not yet? In our text, Peter gives Christians two parallel mindsets that we're to adopt if we desire to live faithfully in this world as we await the Lord's return. And these two parallel mindsets are first, to live in light of the end of all things, and secondly, to live as stewards of God's grace. We're to live in light of the end of all things, and we're to live as stewards of God's grace. Those are the two parallel mindsets Christians are to adopt in this world as we desire to live faithfully as we await the Lord's return. I want to turn our attention to each one in turn. First, we must live in light of the end of all things. He says very clearly in verse 7, the end of all things that is at hand... Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Well, if we're to live in light of the end of all things, we see very clearly from the text it means to be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of our prayers. But what exactly is the end of all things? Well, in one sense, it's right to understand that this means all things are with the return of Christ. The end of all things begins when Jesus returns and begins to judge the living and the dead, the righteous and the unrighteous. And so Christians should anticipate the coming of Christ, the Son of Man, as Paul says, like a thief in the night. There's a certain imminence about the return of Christ that may happen at any moment. You should reject any guesses or speculations about when that might be, except that it could be at any moment. But the New Testament's filled with warnings and prophecies from both Jesus himself and the apostles and the prophets about what must take place first before the Lord returns. And so it means it's unlikely here that Peter is saying something like, Jesus could come back at any moment, so you better be ready, as if this is a game of jack-in-the-box. No, rather, I think we should take the end of all things as near, as Peter describes it, to mean that this is the final dispensation or the final days of the, of the covenant plan of redemption unfolding as God brings in his community to himself. We're in that last phase of God's plan before the Son of Man returns and consummates all promises he's made to his people. We're in the last stretch or leg of the race, as it were. We're in this final act in which God is bringing all things together to accomplish his will, being carried out among the churches and the Christians around us all over the world. And since God intends for our mission to be fulfilled before he ushers in the next epoch, whenever that might be, I think Peter says we are close very close indeed. In fact, the divide between this age and the age to come is shrinking all the time as God accomplishes his purposes in the world through the church. So it's right when Peter says that the end of all things is at hand, that it's near, and it's drawing nearer to us every day by every faithful act of Christian fulfilling the mission that God has placed in his life, every fulfillment of the promises God makes to his people around the world, the end of all things is coming to a close. That divide is shrinking day by day as Christians faithfully fulfill the mission that they've been put on. And so, yeah, we need to be ready 
for when that day comes, but it means all the more we must be diligent to the work at hand. The end of all things is like the sun which has risen over the horizon, the dawning of Christ, the incarnate word of God on the land of the Gentiles. And just as the sun rises, so it must set. And the day that began with the incarnation of Christ will come to an end when Jesus returns. In the meantime, his disciples are to live faithfully on mission, to seek, to save, to serve, to lead, to feed, to care, to love. The day is drawing near. This is why there's many urgent calls in Scripture to not waste your time. The days are evil, Paul says, so make the best use of your time. The psalm says, and the writer of Hebrews picks up again, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart against the Lord. Seek the Lord while he still may be found. So there's a point in actual physical time in which repentance won't be possible because the Lord has shown up and judgment now will take place. There's an urgency and an eminence about what will happen in those last days in which we are currently living. So why is that important? Because the end of all things demands serious priorities and serious prayers, lest we shrink back from our duty to God and to others. This is why he says to be sober-minded and to be self-controlled. We are to do so because of the end of all things. That's what it means to live in light of the end. It demands serious priorities in our life, serious prayers, that we be faithful to this work lest we shrink back from our duty to God and to others. And so we must practice self-control and sober-mindedness in light of the end. Self-control means being able to say no to yourself. Self-discipline and sober-mindedness, thinking rightly about the things that you have been charged with, scripturally, biblically, wisely, theologically, Christocentrically, about what it is you are to think, do, act, and say. But notice what he says here. He says, to be self-controlled and sober-minded, these parallel statements, for the sake of your prayers. What does he mean by this? Well, he's already mentioned a handful of times in the letter already that the prayers of Christians may be hindered by their unrighteous behavior. Husbands will hinder their own prayers being heard by God if they do not live with their wives in an understanding way. If we fail to lead our wives as Godly husbands, men, God says that our prayers may not be heard. Not as if God can't hear, but that he has not inclined himself to us. The promises to be a prayer-hearing God are not ours to believe if we fail to lead our wives and live with them in an understanding way. We also see earlier, quoting from Psalm 34, Peter says that, he inclines his ear to the righteous, but to the unrighteous, he's against. And so the unrighteous behavior puts us in some sort of relationship with God where our prayers, however earnestly offered, will be hindered. They'll fall short. And God may, for a time and for a season, say no. This is a sober warning about 
our behavior, but even more so about how important prayer is to the life of a Christian. There's a particular place of prayer in the life of a weary pilgrim. And when we hinder our prayers through our disobedience, through our failure to love and serve others like our wives, and when we live unrighteously in the world around us, we cut off our lifeline as exiles. No longer we cannot call home. Reception has been cut off. And so the warnings here about not hearing prayers or living in a particular way for the sake of your prayers means to underscore the importance of prayer in the life of the Christian. Consider Luke chapter 21, verses 34 to 36. Jesus says to his disciples, Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. He says to pray for strength to escape all things that are going to take place, these end of things, to stand before the Son of Man. He, he says your prayers are necessary for you to withstand the temptations of the world. So to live in light of the end of all things, according to Jesus and Peter, is to so order your life and so structure your life that maximizes your defenses against the eroding effects of sins, against the alluring inducements and enticements and temptations of the world. So Christians, brothers, sisters, what measures are you taking now, as Jesus says, to watch over your hearts, to strengthen yourself in prayer against the tide of sin? You must be sober-minded and self-controlled so that you may pray that God strengthens you not to give in to the world, not to be so caught up with the cares of this life that you are weakened, not strengthened when the Son of Man comes. There are particular measures you must take, sober-minded decisions you must make, self-controlled actions you must take in order to strengthen and prepare yourself for the end of all things that is to come. This isn't fire and brimstone. This is what we must do as Christians as we await the Lord, of the, uh, Lord to return. And whatever it is, place it in your life and seek the Lord's help. Now, I can hear you bristling in your seats. Perhaps you don't like to place things as laws. Isn't that legalism? Well, no, not at all. But I'll tell you that I would rather be called a legalist for my desire to be unstained by sin than to ignore or to flirt with the very sins that Satan has laid for my very destruction. If endeavoring to read my Bible every day is legalism, I'd rather err there than to go out into the world without an a sword. If praying, coming to church, doing right and godly things that Scripture commands us and endeavoring to discipline myself in a particular way is legalism, well, better to be called a legalist for desiring to love and serve God, be unstained by sin, than to dance with the devil and to flirt with the snares that he lays for your destruction 
Let me be sure legalism can lead to sin and unrighteousness, and I think we should avoid that at all costs. But the implication here is for you and I to take particular measures to avoid the cares of the world entangling us. What does 2 Timothy 2 say? No, a soldier does not become entangled in the affairs of the world, in civilian affairs. The affairs of the country are not ours. We are not citizens of this country or of this world. And so take particular measures as pilgrims to watch over your heart and strengthen yourself against the tide of sin. And so we must live in light of the end of all things by so ordering and structuring our lives to maximize our defense against the effects of sin and the alluring temptations of the world. That's the first. But secondly, then we must live as stewards of God's grace. He goes on in verse 8 to say, Above all, keep, one, keep loving one another. Since love covers a multitude of sin, and show hospitality to one another without grumbling. For as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And so Peter's recognizing that this imminent return of Christ, this dawning of this new day, should not cause us to, to shrink from loving others, but should lead us in earnest love for one another. That should be the response as we consider that the Lord is bringing all things to an end and soon that we are led not from but to earnest love for the brethren. Now, what is love? I know you're all thinking that song, Baby Don't Hurt Me. <laughs> Try to ignore it. What is love? We thank God for God's common grace and songs about love. Well, love, you may have heard, is a verb. It, literally, it's a verb in our texts. The verb is to love. You love one another. You move toward and act in love with those around you. It's an act that has at its center and at its core the highest esteem and good and welfare of another person. That's what it means to love. It's an act that has at its center the highest esteem and goodwill of another. But what does love do? He says, love covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean? Well, it certainly doesn't mean that your sins are going to atone, be atoned for if you do loving things, or that you'll be able to atone for other people's sins, or in that sense, cover their sins with your own love. Instead, I think it would be helpful to look elsewhere in other parts of Scripture for an idea of what this means. I think because Peter is most certainly aware of these passages, and I think they'll help us gain a clear understanding. So at the end of James, chapter 5, verses 19 through 20, he says, My brothers, if anyone is uh, wandering from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from this wandering will save his soul and will cover a multitude of sins. Well, what's happening here is that the returning sinner is not cleared of guilt or sin, but is brought back by a brother who has gone to sought, sought him out and welcome him back into the community as one who was nearly lost to sin and whose place in the body is secured by the searching and the saving love of his brothers. 
So though there are people in our lives who are in sin and wandering from the truth, love means to go and to bring that brother or sister back into the fold of the community. For love covers a multitude of sins. Or in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 12, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Or you're familiar, I'm sure, with 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7. This is from the NIV. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. And it is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. And so love is this act of moving towards those in our midst, even those who are in sin, wandering from truth, and living with them. Now, there is sin in which the church must deal, we saw in 1 Corinthians that sometimes that dealing with sin is the removing of the sinner from the body. But here, Peter's simply recognizing that there are sin in every member of the body of Christ in this world. So who is this love for? It's for one another, he says. Peter's already shown that we must love even those who persecute us and our enemies by moving towards them and blessing and kindness. But here he's primarily concerned with the Christian community to love and serve one another. So when Peter says that we must love one another because love covers a multitude of sins, he means that love enables sinners to live well and to suffer well together. That should be the chief characteristic of our gatherings and our communities. That's why he says, above all, keep loving one another earnestly. An earnest love for one another, which covers over a multitude of sin. It means that we deal with one another's sins and shortcomings, of which there are many. Our covenant binds us together as a church, doesn't it? And it says that we will bear with our failings as we need to be bared with ourselves. We will agitate and become agitated. We will sin against and be sinned against. We will annoy and we will be annoyed. This is just the nature of human life after the fall, this side of redemption or, or this side of heaven. And so love is meant to say, you're with me. In Christ, we serve together. We deal with sin in a real way. But love will cover a multitude of sins. Practically, this means we make decisions about whether or not to confront a brother or sister in a particular way at a particular time. It means we decide to allow certain offenses against us to go unanswered. It means we're patient with those who, because of an immature faith, may be tempted to say things that they shouldn't, foolish things, or do things that are unwise or unbecoming of a Christian. But because we love them, we care for them. We bear with them because love covers a multitude of sin. This is so important because it's essential that love be the chief characteristic of the community of God's people because it is love that is the chief characteristic of the gospel itself. But what does Peter know about love? Well, remember that when Jesus was betrayed and arrested and put before the trial of the Sanhedrin, 
Peter, among others, are watching this happen, and a little girl seems to recognize Peter and say, weren't you one of the disciples? And what does Peter do? He denies him. How many times? Three times. No, I'm not a disciple. I don't follow Jesus. I don't even know who he is. And he runs away. No doubt ashamed because he remembers the Lord's words that before the rooster crows, he would deny him. But Jesus is crucified, put in a tomb, and he's risen again. And he goes to Peter. And he has this interaction with the risen Lord. And Jesus asks him a question three times. Do you know what it is? Do you love me? What does Peter say? Yes, of course. The first answer probably was sincere, but he knew it was the right answer to say. So Jesus asked him again, do you, do you love me? Yes, Lord. Peter, do you love me? You know that I do. So feed my sheep. Peter recognizes the power of redeeming, saving, reconciling love that has, in his case, covered a multitude of sin. Rejected and, and ignored and hated in that very moment, Christ in his name and his reputation and anything belonging to him and ran in the opposite direction. Afraid of a little girl's opinion, he denies Christ. But the powerful love of Christ welcomes him back into the fold. And he says, go feed my sheep. Tell them about that kind of love. So what does Peter know about love? He knows that it is essential to the Christian community to be all about love, earnest love, because love covers a multitude of sins. So we've got, briefly, or as briefly as I'm able to muster, the means of earnest love. You see in verse 9 to verse 10, two means of earnest love. That is how this love is to be played out and lived out among the, the believers, the community of Christians. First, hospitality, there in verse 9. He says, to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Hospitality is a means by which we are to show love earnestly to one another. Literally, the word there for hospitality is a compound word, meaning stranger love. It's how we love the stranger among us. But it's not simply that we would welcome and are hospitable to strangers, but that we would show that same care and that same affection and that same honor to one another with our hospitality. We want to make a good impression of those who are first coming over to our house for the first time. And so we clean up and we make sure our kids are in order and dinner is ready. But for those who we're best friends with, you're lucky if I even come out of my pajamas for you. Well, I don't think we have to get out of our pajamas to welcome friends over, but I think the idea here is that we should show the same honor, love, respect, and reverence to the community of faith which we live with as we would with even a guest or a stranger. And he says so, I think, very practically in telling of the human heart without grumbling or murmuring because hospitality can be burdensome. Hospitality can be burdensome, but the cost and the burden of welcoming others into your life is a worthy price to pay because love covers a multitude of sins. Life doesn't happen here on the two hours and Sunday mornings that we spend with one another. Life happens across from the dinner table that we share with one another. It happens in the living room in which we are unburdening ourselves 
with the cares of this world and we're trying to figure out how to navigate this issue with our children or that conflict with our spouse or this dilemma at work or this trial we're facing. It happens across the coffee table when you're sharing a, a cup of coffee with a brother or a sister, trying to figure out what faithfulness looks like in a particular situation. That's where life happens and you can't do that unless you're willing to open yourself up and become hospitable to one another. Now, you may live in a tiny one-bedroom apartment and having a family over the size of the Norios is not possible. Okay. And if it's possible, probably not wise. <laughs> Unless you value, don't value anything in your home. Which we don't, and that's why they come over. But there are many ways to be hospitable. And I'll leave it to you and the discussions you can have with one another about how you can figure out what that looks like. But the question maybe practically for you is how can you seek to remove as much as possible the burdens of hospitality? See, hospitality doesn't have to be a burden, although simply living with people and opening our lives to people will be vulnerable and burdensome. Well, there's an old saying, I'm sure they say it on the streets, if you stay ready, you don't have to get ready. Do you have a line item in your budget for those who are willing to come over and order a pizza so you don't have to think about cooking? Or maybe there's something always in your freezer you can throw in the oven at a moment's notice and someone calls you and says, want to get together? Are you able to have some flexibility and some margin in your time and your day to meet with somebody? Maybe you're able to regularly clean the house to have it ready, or maybe you need to learn how to let people over without a clean house. Whatever it may be, think about some practical ways that you can remove the burden of hospitality so that you can more readily, eagerly love and show hospitality. The second means of earnest love is service. In verse 10, he says, Eat to receive the gift, use it to serve one another. That's the word by which we get our name, our word for deacon. It's to really be a deacon for one another, not as an office, but as all people are to serve one another in a particular way with the gifts that they've been given. So not only must we welcome one another into our homes, into our lives, but we're also to meet each other's needs, to move toward one another and care for one another. We serve each other in various ways with the gifts that God has given us, these gifts of grace that each one of us has received from the Lord. And remember, the purpose of those gifts are always for the building up of the body of Christ, to meet the needs that the body may have. And therefore, we are to be faithful stewards or good stewards of these gifts. What does it mean to be a good steward of the gift that God has given you? It means, firstly, a good steward will recognize their gift. A good steward recognizes their gift. Now, that doesn't mean you have to take a spiritual gift assessment or survey and figure out, where, you know, are you administrative or are you not? But you recognize where the Lord has so inclined you and gifted you so that you can move towards others in the community and serve them with it. Here he calls these giftings really in two categories. Speaking gifts and serving gifts, speaking gifts like teaching, instructing, like a pastor might. Certainly in this context, prophecy and tongues could be considered a speaking gift, but also serving gifts like administration and encouragement. So a good steward would recognize their gifts, but secondly, a good steward exercises their gift. It means they don't simply have a gift, they know they're gifted, but fails to move in love and in service toward the people around them. That would mean you were not a good steward, but you've been given this particular gift by the grace of God. The gift itself is a grace, 
that you would go and serve those around you with it. Recognize and exercise the gift that God has given you. So we move from the means of love to the ground of earnest love there in verse 11. And there's two grounds by which we re- root our service of hospitality to one another. First, in God's truth, and secondly, in God's strength. It says in verse 11, whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God, and whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. So we are to ground our earnest love and service of one another in God's truth. It means we are equipped by God's word so that we can equip others with God's word. We are given the gift, perhaps of teaching, of encouraging, from God's word. We are equipped with truth so that we might equip others with the truth. It is that we are speaking the very oracles or the words of God. Not that our words become authoritative like God's word is, but as we serve, lead, and love others by God's word, it is as we are giving them God's word himself. So God's truth, we are equipped and we equip others, but we also find that we are strengthened by God in our pursuit of earnest love. See, Christians ultimately are empowered by God to do this kind of thing. Hospitality is is hard, but you can do so by the Spirit. See, Christ sends his Spirit so that you may obey and fulfill all the commandments of love that he has given his people. That's the beautiful promise of the new covenant. The gift that you've received is the Spirit who dwells within you who makes you hospitable and loving and caring and moving towards those who sin against you and to bless those who curse you and to not revile when you are reviled in return. The Spirit empowers you to do this. So you are able to make all of these decisions, move towards others in hospitality and service because you have been empowered by God's Spirit himself. That is the strength that he provides. And so... When Peter says to do so for your prayers, it means that you must pray in the Spirit that you may love earnestly. And lastly, we see in verse 11 the goal of earnest love. He says, most importantly, that we would do all this in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. For to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There are two goals of earnest love. First, we see is, is the glory of God in Christ. That is, we speak and we serve for the glory of Jesus, who redeemed us by his blood. When we tell that story of Peter, we tell that story in our own words because it's our story too. That each one of us has also rejected Christ, denied him, his honor, and his worship. But Christ has come to us. And says, if you're mine, be mine. We tell the story of our redemption of the blood of Christ so that we may, in turn, glorify God for what he's done in our lives. The second goal of our love is that we would have confidence in Christ who is a reigning Savior. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Christ is the risen Lord. He's seated at the right hand of God. He's victorious over all things. And so we can have confidence that he is a reigning savior, not a defeated one, one who is saw and became sin so that we who knew sin would become the righteousness of God. And so because this is true, we love and we live with sinners saved by grace. Sinners whose Love is made manifest because of the love we've received 
by Christ. Christ's love who really did cover a multitude of our sins. And this kind of confidence in this Savior propels us forward on the mission of God, serving others and doing good in the world for his glory while we wait for the glorious return of Christ our Savior. If we are the soldier on the battlefield, we have a mission to love others, to bless others, to serve others. But we turn our hearts and our minds' attention to the worship of Jesus who has authority over all, who is glorious over all things, whose return will come, and who will make all things right. And the storm that we now endure will so enrich the calm that we experience and receive that we give glory to God for his timing and his purposes in this life. Brothers and sisters, have confidence in moving forward and love towards one another showing hospitality and service, exercising the gifts you've been given so that you can display the love of the gospel for you in Christ and for your neighbors around you. Let's pray. God, as always, there's much left on the table. And so I pray that our, our time this week would be filled with wondering and questioning and exploring and applying your words, which is truth. We're thankful for the redemption of Christ who we love because he first loved us. And so we ask that you would so guide us in your spirit to obey the truth of the words we've read and study this morning. We're thankful for the love of Christ, which has covered our sins, empowers us by your spirit to move towards others in love, which covers a multitude of sins. We love you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Recent sermons are released under a Creative Commons, non-commercial, no-derivative 3.0 license. If you'd like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.